0: But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Philippians 1, 27-28 Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, family of God. Well, next week we're going to turn, return to the Gospel of Luke, which we began studying prior to the Advent season. But today we're going to pause after Christmas, after Epiphany, before returning to Luke, to take a week to reflect on the issue of church membership. So our key word today is the word member. Everybody say member. This is going to be an important word for us to think well about. In the coming year, because as you all know, we just brought two congregations together by God's grace to merge as one congregation. And there was members of Rancho Village Baptist Church. There were members of Christ Community Church. And now we're coming together as one. So it's time for us to talk and think about membership again. I'll tell you a little bit about that. But we want to start uh, by digging into God's word and asking the question, what does God want to say to us? about what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. And I'm excited about this because I long for the Holy Spirit to do a work of renewal among us to teach us to love one another all over again. Church, you want to be a a family that loves each other well? You want to do ministry in our community in a powerful, unified way? Well, these words from Paul are here to help us. So before we jump in, would you bow your head with me one more time? We've been praying for the nations, but now I just want to pause to pray for our own hearts and I ask you to ask God to speak to you and to speak to each of us in a fresh way today. I'll be silent for a moment and then I'll say a prayer for us. Most high God, you you have taught us in your word that you are love. And that you sent Jesus in love to rescue us and to bring us into the love that has always been between the Father and the Son. And Jesus taught us to love one another as he has loved us. And he prayed that we would be one. ...as the Father and the Son are one. So, Lord, we ask for your help. In this congregation, I've seen so many beautiful expressions of unity... ...and self-sacrificial love and caring for one another. We give you thanks for that. We ask for more of it. And, Lord, I know that I, myself, and most of us in this room at times... ...have have failed to love one another as we ought. And we ask that you'd forgive us. We ask that this would be a morning of, of renewal and of encouragement... We praise you because you are a God of grace. That your grace covers all our sin and weakness. And your grace gives us a relationship with you. And your grace can bring us into a beautiful community. A beloved community. That only you could have created. So we commit this time to you for your glory. I ask for your help. You help me to say everything you want me to say. And nothing that you don't. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin by asking you to... Give your attention with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, the last verse from our text that's pointed in your bulletin. I'm going to read it a few times. As a matter of fact, it would be great if we all had this verse memorized when we left here today. It's a short, beautiful verse, so maybe I'll ask you to repeat after me. Here we go. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I want to take a few moments at the beginning of this sermon just to really dig into that verse. First of all, let's not skip the little word, you. Everybody say you. Now, this is plural. It's ustedes in Spanish. In Oklahoma, it's y'all. I think in California, it's you guys. So, y'all are the body of Christ. Plural. Plural. He is he's talking about a collective, corporate, communal identity. And specifically, Paul was first talking to the Christians who were a part of the local church in the city of Corinth. And we know a fair amount about this church from Paul's two letters that we have to this church in the New Testament, First and Second Corinthians. And what we know is that this is a group of people who were living a very pagan, sinful lifestyle, very spiritually confused before Paul came and preached the gospel to them. And then when they heard the good news that Jesus is the son of God and that he died on the cross for their sins and that he rose again and that anybody who trusts in Jesus can be forgiven and accepted by God, they believed it and they got excited and God pulled them together to to form a new community, a local church community that was centered around the person of Jesus. And he poured out the Holy Spirit into them, There are many signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit in this church. And yet, this is also a church marked by a lot of conflict. Um, they're, they're dealing with a lot of sexual immorality in their church. There's a lot of immaturity. Um, so, so it's, like a lot of churches, got a lot of good in it and a lot of bad in it. There's a lot of beauty in it and there's a lot of ugliness in it. We read about some other churches. I mean, everything seems to indicate that the church in Ephesus was pretty mature, pretty healthy. They had their own problems, their own sins. But this church is different. They're dealing with a lot of challenges. And the reason I mentioned that from the beginning is to say, now when we finish the phrase, you are the body of Christ, that has special meaning. Everybody say, you are the body of Christ. He's making a statement to them about their identity. This is not a moral exhortation. He's not saying try to be the body of Christ. He's saying to them, this is who you are, even when you're struggling to live it out very well. It's a statement of identity and it's a statement which is a gift of grace. Even when you're struggling, even when you're hurting, even when you're trying to deal with sin in your midst. Here's the reality. You, local church in Corinth, are the body of Jesus Christ. You are the body of Christ. This this image now we got to think about, what does it mean to say you're the body of Jesus? Paul has several metaphors he likes to use for the church. He talks to us about being a family. God is our father. Jesus Christ is like our elder brother. That means we're all brothers and sisters. That's why when I come up here, I usually say good morning, family of God. I want us to always remember that reality. We're a family. Paul talks about the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. Jesus loves us and he's entered into a covenant relationship with us. But one of Paul's favorite metaphors is this metaphor. You are the body of Christ. Now, what does the image mean? What is it saying about our identity? It means several things. And Paul uses the image in different places and in in different ways to emphasize different truths and realities about the church. Sometimes he emphasizes Our head. Who is the head of the church? Somebody shout it out if you know. That's right. Jesus is our head. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. What makes us a community is our shared union with Jesus Christ. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. By trusting in him, I have died and risen with Christ. By trusting him, if you're a Christian, you have died and risen in Christ. Our common unity with Jesus connects us to one another and we're organically tied to him. He's our source of life. He's our source of direction. He's also our authority. Aren't you glad Jesus is in charge of his church? There are lesser leaders, under leaders, and those leaders are not as smart and holy as Jesus. Okay, that's why we need Jesus to be the head of the church. Paul also occasionally uses this metaphor to make the point that we as a community are Supposed to be the living embodiment of the presence of Christ in our communities. We call this the incarnational reality of the church. For example, at the end of Ephesians chapter one, Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church. And then he says this about the church. Jesus is the head of the body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Jesus is the one who fills all in all. And it's saying, but if you want to know the question, Jesus is omnipresent. We learned about that word today in youth. Sunday school. Jesus is omnipresent. God is uh, the, the divine nature of Christ is with us everywhere. And yet, if you want to ask the question, where is the presence of Christ most fully manifest on the earth? Paul says the answer is the community of believers. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So sometimes Paul's talking about emphasizing Jesus as the head. Sometimes he's emphasizing the reality that we as a community are supposed to be the place on the earth where God's presence is embodied. But here in 1 Corinthians 12, he's especially trying to emphasize the fact that because we're all one body, we are organically connected to one another in relationships of interdependent love. Interdependent love. We're connected to each other as one body. And this idea about our connection to one another in relationships of interdependent love is especially made clear in the second half of the verse. Let's say it together one more time. Y'all repeat after me. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So the first half of that verse is saying an identity statement about our collective identity. We're the body of Christ. And the second statement is saying an individual statement about each of us. Each of us is a member of of the body. Each of us is a member of the body. Now, to help us understand what that means, we're trying to think about this word member. Got to recognize Paul is using the word member in a way that is different than what we're probably immediately thinking about when we hear that word member. Most of us, when we hear the word member, we're probably thinking about some group or club or political party that we voluntarily choose to associate ourselves with based on some common shared interests, right? So you might be a member of a club soccer team, or you might be a member of the chess club, if you're more into chess and soccer, or both, if you're into both of those things, right? You might be a member of a gym where you like to go work out. You might be a member of the Republican or Democratic Party or the Independent Party or some other. I mean, uh, the uh, the Independent Party is not a party, but you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) You're going to be a member. And that's a voluntary association. You could choose to be a member, then you could choose to be not a member, And a lot of us have lots of memberships, and we're navigating all of those, and we might think of them as a part of our social identity, or we may not. But I choose to be a part of it. It's based on common interests, shared values, and then I can choose not to be a part of it. Now, Paul is saying something very different here. Almost none of that applies to what he's saying. He's saying you are a member of the Christian community like your thumb is a member of your body. Like your spleen. Where's the spleen, Dr. Ebert? Back here somewhere. Like your spleen is a member of your body. That that means I mean, what what happens if I cut my thumb off? It's a dead thumb, right? We're connected to one another in a way that's not a voluntary association based on our shared interests or hobbies or whatever. We're connected to one another because God did a supernatural work to connect us to one another. And he did it in such a way that our very life depends upon it. It's not like we voluntarily chose to be a member of 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 the church and then we can voluntarily pull out and everything's okay. God made us a member of the body of Christ. So really it means like a bodily organ. But if I asked you to sign a bodily organ covenant to be a part of Redemption Church, that would be weird, right? So we're gonna call it membership. But but the point here is it's talking about something which is living and alive and deep. Now, to think about this theme of membership years ago, I read a great little essay by C.S. Lewis called Membership. That was the name of the essay. And he he made this point, which uh, is worth thinking about, that the the Pauline concept of membership, what Paul means when he says this is something uh, that is very different from the concept of membership, which we tend to be evoking when we use that word in English today. But it's also something that works against, it's countercultural against two tendencies that are opposites, but that are always pushing against each other in our contemporary Western societies. One of them is the tendency towards hyper-individualism. I become my fullest version of myself by being a super individual, not dependent on anybody else, not committed to anybody else. I'm my own person over here. I'm not going to do, I mean, everything's going to be original. That's hyper individualism. The opposite tendency in our culture is collectivism, which tends to make us all um, sort of interchangeable units who don't have individual and specific identity. And I don't have time to break down all the ways in which those two things are going on in their society. But they are. And what Paul is doing here is something which works against both of those, but takes us much deeper into thinking about identity and community. Because here's the thing. Your thumb is different than your spleen. Amen. Your lungs are different than your eyeballs. They're very, very, very different. But their individuality and their uniqueness. Become manifest in a beautiful, healthy way, precisely by their connection to one another. They are not interchangeable units. They're different. They're distinct. They're diverse parts. But their individuality is expressed beautifully through their connection to one another. What it's saying to us as the the Christian community is this. Jesus wants to manifest his presence among us. As a matter of fact, if we think about this image of of, uh, the church as the body of Christ, embodying God's presence, we can think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous definition of the church as Christ present in community. What is the church? It's Jesus making himself present in this community. And if we ask, how does that work? One of the ways it works is this. Each of us learns to receive from Jesus, to receive from one another and to serve one another. And as we think about Jesus and think about one another, our individuality becomes beautifully apparent such that by being committed to one another and by serving one another, it becomes clear that we're all so different. Unity and diversity go together. Now, Paul is basically trying to connect the thought, the dots between three big ideas here. We all need Jesus and I need you and you need me. We all need Jesus and I need you and you need me. And the good news is because of the gospel, Jesus has given himself to us. Aren't you so glad, church family? And he has given us to one another. You have a place to belong and you have a purpose and it's a gift of grace Now, to help us dig deeper into these truths, look back to the beginning of our passage, verses 12 and 13. Paul started this little section by saying this, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. That's the same thing we've been talking about Because we're all connected to Jesus, we're all connected to one another. We're different from one another. We have different spiritual gifts, different backgrounds, different personalities, different cultures, different generations. And yet we're connected to one another. And our diversity can become beautiful as an expression of love as we walk in unity together. But then he goes on to say this for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks. Slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one's spirit. This is a radical statement. In, in this cultural context that Paul is writing to, there's a lot of ethnic tension going on. Including tension between Jews and Greeks. But he's saying people who may not like each other and may not even know each other. They may prejudge each other out in the rest of the world. Here, they have become one, one family, one body, not by voluntary association based on cultural affinity. They become one body because Jesus made them one body. And in this place, they're learning to live and love and serve and to know each other and to care for one another. He also talks about slaves and free. I mean, you can imagine there might be some tensions between slaves and masters. And they, he's in a culture in which their slaves are free. And now they've come to know Christ and they're trying to wrestle with what's that reality? Uh, uh, what's the new reality supposed to look like for us? And uh, Paul tells some tells one person at least to set his slaves free. But he begins by saying all of us got to learn to see one another as being created by God, being loved by God, being part of the family of God and the body of Christ. And we learn to love each other. And that's the starting point for thinking about everything else. So what he's saying is, by the power of the gospel, your ethnic and your economic divisions are being overcome. Not in a way that erases your distinctive ethnic identity, but in a way that teaches you to love and serve and celebrate one another. Now, is that relevant for us, church? We, we live in a culture today, as you know, that is very polarized. And that we have a lot of us and them stuff going on in our culture. My ethnic group, my economic interest group, my political party. And Paul is saying, now in Jesus, there are greater things that unite you than what could divide you. Which means now you've got to learn how to live together, to serve one another, to listen to one another, to care for one another, to live out that reality. God already made it real. It's a gift of grace. It's a statement of identity. But now we've got to learn how to live out that identity. And he says to us, part of what unifies you is your common experience of the Holy Spirit. Jesus dunked you in the Holy Spirit when you became a Christian. Okay, you trusted in Jesus Christ. You received water baptism in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And Jesus baptized you in the Holy Spirit. And then the end of verse 13 says we all drink from the same spirit. If the Holy Spirit lives in me and the Holy Spirit lives in you, we shouldn't be hating one another. Amen, church. But we could say better than that. If the Holy Spirit lives in me and the Holy Spirit lives in you, we ought to be loving one another. We ought to be celebrating one another. We ought to be learning from one another and sharing with one another. The Holy Spirit not only helps us to love one another despite our differences. Actually, the Holy Spirit creates many of those differences for our good. Did you hear that, church family? It's not that difference is a problem that needs to be overcome. It's not just that the Holy Spirit helps us to love each other despite our differences. The Holy Spirit actually creates those differences for our good. Now, we could say this in many ways just because God created each of us in our individuality, as individual human beings and in our cultural and ethnic diversity. But also in this passage, Paul makes it clear the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts, not in the part we have quoted, if you go read the rest of 1 Corinthians 12. The Holy Spirit specifically distributes different spiritual gifts. So we got evangelists in our midst and we got uh, servants and we got teachers, all kinds of different gifts among us. He's emphasizing and creating diversity for our good. And I love a comment I read this week. This was written by Cyril of Jerusalem, who was a great Christian teacher in Jerusalem uh, about 14, excuse me, about 1600 years ago. And he, he was reflecting on this passage and he compared the the gift of the spirit poured into the church to the rain. When the rain comes and it gives life to the land, but all kinds of different plants sprout up. He said this one and the same rain comes down on all the world. Yet it becomes white in the lily, red in the rose, purple in the viol- violets and hyacinths, different and many colored and manifold species. Here's what he's saying. When the Holy Spirit pours out power into the church. We all come alive, but we come alive in different ways, with different smells and different colors. And that diversity is beautiful in that good church. This same is true of us. God has not made us the same. He's made us different from one another, but he's called us to be one so that we learn to love each other and to depend upon one another. Now, the middle of this passage is really important because in in between... The end of the passage is the beginning of the passage that we've already talked about. Paul does several things, but one of the things he does is to contradict two lies that the devil often tells us. That tend to get us twisted in the way that we think and feel about Christian community. First, the devil likes to convince us that we are not important to the body. I know that many of you in this room, maybe all of us in this room. Have felt that way at times. I'm not important to the body. Maybe because I've sinned too much and so now I'm not useful. Maybe the devil's trying to tell you that. Maybe I just don't fit in enough. Everybody else has friends and invite them, but I'm over here feeling left out. I'm not asking anybody to raise their hands, but I know we've all felt that way at times. I know there's been times where you may have wrestled with, I see everybody else using their gift and contributing but I don't know how I'm supposed to contribute, and when I try, nobody notices. We could just be honest that the devil really wants to discourage us. The, the devil loves to discourage, divide, distract, and deceive—the four Ds, okay? And we fight all of those with the gospel. He tries to tell you, "You don't matter to the body." But listen, God's word is true, and God's word says you matter. So, everybody, turn to your neighbor, say, "You matter." As a matter of fact, we've been saying this the whole time, but now I want you to say it to one another. Everybody turn to your neighbor on your left and say, I need you. Now turn to the other side and say, you need me. A couple people just like got all googly-eyed looking at their spouse, and then they turn to the other side like, who's over here? This is about the body. This isn't about marriage. I mean, it's about marriage too, but not just marriage. We all need each other in the body. What, what, am, I, what am I basing that on, though, from this text? Look again at verse 15. It says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Can you imagine if your f- foot went on strike? If it had deep identity issues, right? I just, I'm smelly. Nobody notices me. Only when I get a hangnail do they even know I'm here, right? Right. And it just disconnected itself. First of all, it would not become more footy. It would become less footy by disconnecting itself. It would fail to be its own individual self. But second of all, the rest of the body would notice, right? We'd have big problems. And what it's saying here is some of you feel like that sometimes. You feel like a foot. You feel like stinky and like everybody only notices you when there's something wrong. But here's the truth in Christ your identity is that you are organically connected to this body such that no, no matter how we feel and no matter even if we're acting wrong, we cannot flourish without you and you cannot flourish without us. That's what Paul's saying. Because I am not, if it says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You just are a part of the body. Jesus did that, He made it happen. And then it goes on and says, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? The the point here, church family, is that every part of the body is loved by God, but also that every part of the body is necessary to the flourishing of the body. We cannot be who God called us to be apart from each of us, each member. But there's an opposite lie that the devil tells And the opposite lie is that we might start to think of ourselves as most important to the body. My gifts are the most important. Most of us probably wouldn't say it that way. I mean, if we're new believers, we may say it that way. But if we've been around church a while, we learn how to get sophisticated with our pride. So it doesn't even sound like pride anymore, right? We may not say, I'm very important. I'm much more important than everybody else. But we may subtly act as if me and my crew... And my inner circle are very valuable, and others that are outside of that circle don't matter as much. And sometimes you can see how easily, if the devil's telling both of those lies, they can start feeding into one another within body life. And so, Paul counteracts that too. And he does it in some very radical, beautiful, countercultural ways. Let's start looking at verse 21. It says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. See, this is different. Earlier, it was body parts saying, I don't matter to the body. Now, it's body parts saying to one another, I don't need you. And Paul wants to counteract that. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I encourage you to underline those last words of verse 25. What's the goal of what he's saying here? That the members may have the same care for one another. This is about learning to care for one another. It's about learning to love one another. It's about learning to value one another. Here's the reality. In the world, some people are going to be treated as more than and some people are going to be treated as less than. And if we're not careful, that can come into the church. But the Holy Spirit is fighting against that. And it doesn't just say the Holy Spirit fights against that by giving equal honor to everybody. It actually said the Holy Spirit is fighting against that by giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. I've often thought, and this is a challenging thought for myself and for us and for any church or ministry. If we're going to make some sort of a a self-evaluation tool or report card for us to think about our holiness think about our obedience to god one of the questions should be on it how do we treat the members of our community that are the most difficult or embarrassing they're less culturally the least culturally acceptable are they the most honored and celebrated that's what paul is saying is supposed to happen right here As I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about Johnny Erickson Tata. Anybody know who Johnny Erickson Tata is? A couple people raised their hands. I love Johnny Erickson Tata, amazing woman of God who had a terrible accident as a teenager and became a quadriplegic, unable to move her arms and legs for the rest of her life, had to go through terrible pain. But she ended up starting a ministry, Johnny and friends, that has been an incredible ministry for people like her who have various physical or mental or emotional disabilities, And I I just remember being so moved one time hearing her saying, um, talking about this passage and saying, the church desperately needs people like me. I can't walk. I need people to carry me everywhere. I'm totally dependent. And the people that are a part of our ministry, many of them have genetic disorders or mental disorders or physical disorders. She's saying the church desperately needs people like that. Those people are a gift to the church. She's not saying the church is a gift to take care of those poor, needy people. She's saying those people are a gift to the church because by learning to receive love and give love to those people, we find Jesus. We find Jesus. This is a radical call to a radical interconnectedness. And the result is that we have the same care for one another. So if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We learn to grieve with each other's grief, to celebrate each other's victories. Now, you've experienced this with your body, right? If you eat some really good food, those taste buds are concentrated in a very small percentage of your person, right? Like one, two percent of your body has taste buds on it. Right. But when you eat that meal, doesn't your whole self feel good? If you get that massage, oh, man, they may only be rubbing like five percent of you right here, but your whole cell feels good. Right. On the other hand, has anybody ever dropped something really, really heavy on one toe? Whenever something starts hurting, you realize how much you always use that thing every day. Right. I remember as a kid growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth, I was a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, and we were already the greatest team in the world, and then we got Neon Deon Sanders. Anybody remember that? You couldn't put to him, or he'd run it back for a touchdown every time, and then he hurt one toe. And I remember he was out for like, I can't remember, it seemed like a whole season. And he was out, and I remember thinking, it's just a toe, bro, suck it up. We need you out there. But then as an adult, I've heard some stuff, and I'm like, I'm sorry, Neon Deon, I never should have judged you like that. If one part of the body hurts. Now, the reality is within our own bodies, there's often complexity. I may be eating a steak dinner while I got a broken toe, right? So that we're we're celebrating and grieving at the same time. And when we come together as a Christian community, it's pretty much always like that. There's always people grieving. There's always people in victory. And a mature, healthy community is learning to deal with that complexity, but to love one another enough to enter into it together. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Don't you want to be like that, church family? Now, with the last part of my time, I want to step back. I've been zooming in to look at some details in this passage, but I want to step back and try to ask and answer three questions that I think will be helpful for us moving forward as a congregation as we think about how to live this out together. First question is this. How should we think about the fact that many people in the world and perhaps in our midst have been deeply hurt by the body of Christ. Now, I've been talking about the beauty of Christian community. I've been talking about how lovely and wonderful and healing it can be. But I remember years ago when I was going into the ministry, an older man who had been in the ministry for decades and was a wise voice that I cared about told me, here's one of the things you need to prepare yourself for. and your years of ministry... You're you're expecting that the most opposition and difficulty and pain is going to come from non-Christian people in the world. But that's not true. Your biggest pain is going to come from within the body of Christ. But you've got to keep loving it. Because that's going to be your calling. And that is definitely proved true. It's often the people that are closest to us that can hurt us the most. We experience that in our families, don't we? And... We live in a culture that's hypersensitive to that right now, partly because of scandalous sin in the body of Christ. Because of sexual immorality and abuse and all kinds of things that have deeply hurt people. So there's like a cottage industry on spiritual abuse right now. How should we think about that as Christians in the light of beautiful passages like 1 Corinthians 12? Well, if we just work with the metaphor for a second, church... The body can become sick, can't it? Like your physical body, it can become sick. And one of the things that happens when that happens is that one body part starts hurting another body part and it can cause a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, can even kill the body. And there are less severe illnesses, like if you get a little cold. But there are also more severe illnesses, like heart disease. And when the New Testament talks about church life and the reality of the push and pull and hurting each other's feelings and all that kind of stuff in church life. When it talks about what we might call those less severe illnesses, like getting a cold, what, what would that be? Somebody makes a joke at a small group that hurts your feelings. Somebody rebukes you and there may be some truth in it, but they're very harsh. These kinds of things. Somebody overlooks you on a social event. You feel hurt. And and the push and pull of those small things, I won't say that they're normal because in heaven, even those won't happen anymore. Amen. So I won't say they're normal, but the the New Testament does ask us to set our expectations that between the first coming of Jesus and glory, those things are going to happen. And what it tells us in in those situations is bear with one another, love one another, forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you doesn't mean we. Ignore things that need to be addressed. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he he repents of his sin, forgive him. So we've got to address things, uh, but we also need to have grace and expect that. But that doesn't mean that we should have the expectations of grievous sin and corruption and abuse, which have affected so many churches. That is a grievous evil, which Jesus hates. Can we be specific about that and clear about it? It should not be like that. And how we respond to treatment of the illness depends on what kind of illness it is. In situations of tremendous abuse and pain and hurt, such as the sexual abuse crisis that's gotten so many headlines lately, we're not supposed to say, oh, brother so-and-so is very sorry, I forgive you. You need to forgive them. That's not what we're called to do. More severe illnesses call for more severe treatments, church. My appendicitis is about to blow up and kill my body. The doctor takes it out, which is roughly analogous to the most extreme form of church discipline. Right. So I'm just having a serious moment right here to say as as a Christian community, one of the things that we need to be serious about is God has called this to be a healthy place of love. And we want to keep it that way. Amen. Which means small things, we expect them to come up and we deal with them. We expect there to be sin. We expect to deal with it. But we're not going to tolerate abusing and hurting people. We will deal with those things if necessary with church discipline in order to protect the body. But I also just want to speak personally to those of you in this room that have been hurt. Here's the first thing that you need to hear. I'm so sorry that you have been hurt by the body of Christ. But just remember Jesus loves you. Jesus is with you. And whatever ways people have sinned against you, Jesus is not like that. He's always compassionate. He's always trustworthy. He's always caring. And Jesus is going to be very patient with you on your healing journey. Even though sometimes church folk don't know how to do that. He loves you and he cares about you. And if, there, if you've got stuff in your passage you need to talk to us, our pastors would love to listen to you and to pray with you and uh, try to walk with you if you need to go on a healing journey. But I also want to encourage you and exhort you that um, sometimes when we've been hurt so much, obviously the most natural thing is to get out of that situation so I never get hurt again. And so when people have been hurt in the church, sometimes it's not just that they leave that church. Maybe they should leave that church if it's deeply unhealthy. But sometimes they want to leave the church. You understand what I'm talking about, right? There's a lot of people that just want to get disconnected from community. And here's the thing, when the body is sick, it needs to be healed by God's radical grace. But I can't heal my thumb by cutting it off the of body. I can't heal my heart by taking it out and putting it in an ice chest. You hear what I'm saying? Cutting ourselves out of the body, sometimes, you know, if, if we're talking about a very toxic, abusive environment, stepping out of that environment in order to heal is the right thing, maybe the right first step. But long term, I'm talking about isolation long term, cutting ourselves out of the body of Christ is not going to bring the deep and lasting healing that we desire. Over the long haul, an isolated Christian is not going to be a thriving Christian. Because of how God has set up the body and perhaps God in his grace wants to use the body of Christ. To heal you from wounds that you received within the body of Christ. After all, that's what happens with our physical bodies, right? This thing can go haywire and parts of my body can start attacking one another, but also God made our bodies good at healing one another. And understand, church, that is what is happening to the Corinthian church to which Paul is writing this letter. This is a church in which they are struggling and many people have hurt each other and he's teaching them a way of grace. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the place where they've been hurt can become the place that they heal. Church, we've just got to decide. Do we want to be a place that hurts people and then covers it up to hide it? Or do we want to be a place that heals people? And the answer is obvious. Which one do you want to be, church? A place of healing. That means we need to be a place of grace that's submitted to the word of God. And that walks patiently with people who have been hurt. Now, there's much more that we could say about this. I understand that this might rise up really big issues for some of you personally. We can't deal with it all right here, but I really do encourage you. Come talk to me, Chauncey, Jared, any of our pastors. We would love to talk to you about your experience. But let me ask the second question. First question we asked was, what do we do with the fact that often the body of Christ is a place where we might have been hurt? Second question is this. How can Paul's idea of membership here in First Corinthians 12 inform the way that we think about up in and out? Now, let me explain that question and then answer it briefly at Redemption Church. We say a lot up in and out. If you're newer here, you may not have heard that language. So let's talk about it real quick. Everybody say up. Everybody say in. Everybody say out. When we trust in Jesus, the gospel of Christ begins to reorient in our lives in these three ways. God, by his grace, calls us up into a new relationship with God. As we learn to walk in intimacy with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, God's life in us transforms us to make us more like Jesus. That's up. The gospel also calls us in that's about being invited into a new community of love where we serve one another, care for one another, speak truth to one another, have fellowship with one another. And by his grace, through the gospel, God leads us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the kingdom of God in our community through words of truth as we proclaim the gospel and teach the Bible and through deeds of love as we Bring the restorative love of Jesus to our neighborhoods. So that's up, in, and out. And I just want to make this point real quick. If I ask you, what does Paul's concept of membership have to do with up, in, and out? The most obvious is in, right? This is all about in. We need to learn how to fellowship together, how to serve one another, and how to honor one another. But I want you to recognize, too, that getting this right is essential for up and out as well. What do I mean? Up is about my relationship with God. But if what Paul is saying is true, and it is because he's an apostle writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if what Paul is saying is true, then I can't get all of God's self that God wants to give me if I isolate myself because God wants to give me some of himself through you. You got that? Which means if you want to know Jesus in his fullness, you got to recognize recognize Jesus is going to present himself to you, not only in your personal times of prayer and devotion and service. He's going to present himself to you within the community. Jesus is going to give himself to you through the brothers and sisters so that as we learn to do the hard work of interdependent love, we learn how to know God. We, we experience God and we become like Christ. Another way to think about it is Jesus and his disciples. He didn't call 12 just because it was too inefficient to train one at a time when it really would have been better just to Give all of his attention to one. He called twelve because their relationship with one another was one of the primary mechanisms that he was going to use to form them into mature disciples. So we need this membership thing to do up well, but we also need it well to do out well. Um we've got a mission to fulfill in our community, and we're called to represent Jesus to the community. And we are the body of Christ. Everybody repeat after me. Say, you are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. Now, if we are called to represent Jesus to a community and only one of us goes, then they think Jesus is a thumb. See what I'm saying? And only two of us goes. I don't know. Maybe we've got a thumb and an elbow or something to represent Christ's fullness to the community. We've got to go together. Here's a way we could put it really practically. Um, we need evangelists and we need servants, and we need givers, and we need people with hospitality working together to reach our community. Because if it's only evangelists, then everybody hears the good news, but nobody gets invited to the community where they're going to get cared for. If it's only hospitable people, then we are hospitable to one another, but we're not out engaging the community. So my point here is we've got to learn this interdependent thing for up, in, and out. Now, last question before we wrap up. Paul, How should Paul's idea of membership affect the way that we think about the Universal Church, as well as the local church, okay theologians talk about the Universal Church, which means we are united as one body with all god 's people all over the world isn 't it great to know you got Christian family on every continent i don 't know about Antarctica, but at least six out of seven ain 't bad. that um, we got Christian family in China, we got Christian family in Nigeria, we got Christian family in Brazil all over the world. And we're united with them in one body. And that's very important. But also, the Bible not only talks about the universal church, it talks about the local church. The important reality that we're called to live together as a particular people of God in this time and in this place. And I mention that right now because I feel like one of the points of confusion that my generation of Christians has wrestled with and and below, those younger than me, is thinking that to be really unified means to focus on the universal church. I've known people that for years would go around to a bunch of different churches and ministries saying, I don't want to just be in my little holy club. I want to be connected to all of the body of Christ. And they would go to a lot of different things and they would emphasize unity with the universal church. But what I would suggest to you is unity with the universal church is very, very important. Y'all know I care about that because... Through lots of ministries, including our participation in the Stronger Together movement. We're working to build bridges between different parts of Christ's body at at different ethnic groups, different denominational groups. We're working hard to do that and to build bridges with the whole global, uh, global church throughout the world. That's very important. But unity always starts locally. Unity always starts locally. The deepest experience of unity that we can have is clearly at the local level. Rather than the universal level. A Christian across the world cannot bring me a cup of soup when I am sick. But you can. And I cannot hold hands and pray with all Christians in the whole world at the same time. But I can hold your hand. And we can pray together during a time of crisis. Anybody had somebody in the church pray for you in a time of need and it really blessed you? Anybody go where you were having difficulty and somebody brought you some food and it blessed you? That that can only happen locally. It can only happen in a local church. Moreover, Christians who have learned how to be deeply unified within their own local churches will be the best at building bridges of unity with the whole universal church. So we got to emphasize unity beginning at the local level now to. To bring this home to us very specifically, Um, when we talk about membership, one of the things that our church and, and most churches, many churches will talk about is becoming a member, perhaps signing a membership agreement or a membership covenant to join a local church. What does that mean? Here's what it means. And it means recognizing the New Testament calls us not only to love all Christians everywhere universally, but also to be particularly committed and responsible for doing ministry together and caring for a particular group of Christians in a particular place with a particular structure. I got a lot of verses about that in my notes, but I don't have time to talk about them right now because I talked too long about other things. So just take me to coffee if you want the whole thing. okay, guys. But when we sign that membership covenant, or when you sign to join, join a church at any different church, it's just recognizing the Bible calls us to be clear, specific and explicit about our commitment to do the will of God with a particular group of people. It's easiest to see this, by the way, if you just look at some of the passages on church leadership. And how we respond to it, because it doesn't say sh- when, when the Bible says shepherd, the flock of God to elders, for example, in first Peter five it doesn't say shepherd, the whole universal church it says shepherd, the flock of God among you. And likewise, when it calls uh, pe- church members to uh, uh, encourage and affirm their leaders within the congregation, it doesn't mean you've got to follow the lead of every pastor on the planet. That would be very confusing, right? It just means within your context. So there's a particular responsibility within A particular community to care for one another. Signing a membership covenant is a way of acknowledging our mutual responsibilities towards one another as a community of love. It's also a practical way of pursuing the unity of mind that Paul talks about. In your bulletin, there is a passage from Philippians 1. I haven't even talked about it yet. But here, Paul is talking about the church living on mission. And he talks about the church... Working together as one with one spirit and one mind in their community. And he says that when you are unified, unity of mind in the way that you go about your mission with joy and courage in the midst of opposition, that's actually a sign to those who are opposing you of the reality of God's kingdom coming. So how do you practically go about getting that unity of mind in terms of what are we doing together? Well, here's the thing. No church can do 50 things well. Maybe a really big church could do 50 things well. Probably not, though. Definitely no church can do 150 things well. I'm not I'm working on trying to do like six things well in our church. Right. So we need focus. We need focus. And what a membership covenant and and being serious about membership is doing is saying, hey, we're going to take really seriously The teaching of God's word that we are especially responsible to care for one another, to love one another, to speak truth to one another, to serve one another and to be on mission to fulfill God's calling for our particular local church community, for our particular congregation. And that's what it's about. So here's what you can expect right now. It's really confusing to know who's a member of what church because we just merged. Amen. Anybody felt confused in the last few months? Some of you have asked me, how do I join the church? And if so, which church am I joining? Right. Uh, So here's what we're planning on doing. I'm just laying out the plan for you now. In a few weeks, we haven't set the date yet, but hopefully we'll have that for you next week. In February, most likely, we're going to have a members meeting. We already had one members meeting and everyone was confused about who was a member for the members meeting. But we want to make that not confusing. So we're going to have a members meeting. And we'll talk about a lot of things that that's going to be an exciting time of celebration. But one of the things that we're going to do is invite all of us to re-up on our membership commitment. Which means everybody from Christ Community Church, everybody from Rancho Village Baptist Church, if you're already a member of one of those churches, now we're going to sign, hey, we're members of Redemption Church and we're going to celebrate. Doesn't that sound like a fun excuse to party? So we're going to party together. And also, those of you who have started coming... In the last few months, this will be an opportunity for you to get explicit and say, yes, I'm joining Redemption Church. Now, if you had not previously been a member of Christ Community Church and or or Rancho Village Baptist Church, we'll ask you also to sit down with a couple of our pastors and have a pre-membership conversation in preparation for that time. So we'll give more information about that. But the membership covenant that you'll sign, we're going to make it available in the coming weeks. We would have had it for you today, but the Internet stopped working at a church this week. So we're just dealing with these little realities as they come up. But uh, hopefully next week there will be a QR code on, code on your bulletin where you can go read everything that's in that membership covenant. It's calling us to core truths about God, Jesus, salvation, the scriptures and the mission of the church that we're all going to commit to. It's talking about our relational values. How do we make sure we're loving each other according to biblical standards? So this is a place of healing and never a place where people are going to be hurting one another. It's also going to talk about what is our community of mission that we're agreeing together. We're going to work on these things out in our community to give focus. Now, I want to end today. By returning to where we started. You already say the verse you may have it memorized already by now. First Corinthians 12, look at verse 27 again. You are the body of Christ. And individually members of it. When it comes time to sign a membership covenant, what we're really just doing is saying, I'm going to explicitly commit. To walk with this group of people in the way that expresses the identity that God has already given me by grace. Our unity is ultimately not something that is manufactured by our effort. It's a gift of grace. Jesus died and rose again so we can be reconciled to God and so we can learn to live with one another And the Holy Spirit has been poured out into everyone who trusts in Jesus so that we can learn to love one another. This reality that we're the body of Christ is a beautiful gift, which remains true even when we're struggling. It's a place to belong. It's a sacred purpose to care for one another. And my prayer is that God will give us the grace to receive this gift with joy. I want to invite you now to stand and I'm going to say a prayer for you. And then we're going to respond to God's word by singing one more song of worship. Our Father in heaven, you are a gracious and a loving and a good God. We thank you for making us a part of the family of Jesus. We thank you for making us a part of the body of Christ. Lord, I. I'm just aware that even now as we sing, there may be people in this room that haven't taken that first step of trusting Jesus and becoming a part of the body of Christ. So I'm just praying right now that if there's anybody in that place that your Holy Spirit would be calling them to yourself today, right now, to trust in Jesus and to take those steps of baptism and beginning full participation in your community. For those of us that have already taken that step, we just pray for your grace, Lord. Um, Where we have been wounded, would you heal us? Lord, where we have wounded others, would you forgive us? Where we've grown tired in the call to one another, would you strengthen and enliven us? Lord, for anybody who's really feeling either of those lies we were talking about. Would you let the truth of Christ prevail? That every person in this room is a needed and valuable part of the body. And for your glory... So that we can know you and worship you and fulfill your purposes in our community. Would you help us to be a people who increasingly loves one another well? That we honor others. We encourage others. We pray for others. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We'll be sure to give you the glory and the praise for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.